You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Well, welcome to our very first episode of Like Flint Radio. This is a new venture for us, as our regular listeners will know. We're making a move from Future Quake Southern Hemisphere to Like Flint Radio. And we are drawing our crew from Future Quake South Africa, Future Quake Southern Hemisphere. And we have a new crew member who we will be hearing from a bit later on in this episode, Cliff Garner, who is in Turkey, and his show was American Amnesia. Now, obviously, I'm your host, GK, and I'm in Australia. And on the line from South Africa, I have Cruzy. How are you, Cruzy? I'm great, thanks, you, I'm doing good, thanks, mate. Very warm here. And in another location in the mother city of Cape Town, we have Miss Andy Tate. How are you, Andy? Hey, G. Very, very good to be with you guys and very excited to do our first show. Okay, cool. Well, I think what we'll do as our first thing, we might explain just briefly the reason for our name. Now, we did discuss in show 73 of Future Quake Southern Hemisphere the reasoning for the change for the new show. But we might just give you a couple of scriptures that we're basing our show upon and then we'll get on with the show. Or actually, no, what we'll do after that is we'll discuss how the show is going to operate from here on out. So I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures and let you have a think about it in your own time. But our show is loosely based on these couple of scriptures, actually, and more. But we'll just start with Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. And it says, For the Lord God helps me, Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Now, the companion, in my opinion, scripture for that in the New Testament comes from Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And that states, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And because it's talking about Jesus... Some other versions may say he set his face for Jerusalem. So what we're taking from this is um, at some point in all of our lives and in all of our walks as believers, we do have to set our face and go for it, like make a decision that we're going to follow the Lord, follow what he has for us, and we're just going to go for it. So that's very, very loosely the idea behind the name of the show Like Flint Radio. But You can look those scriptures up for yourself. But what we want to talk about now is how the show is going to work. Now, there won't be a lot of differences from Future Quake Southern Hemisphere in that we're hoping to do, you know, say one interview show followed by what we're going to call a Flint Flake show because that's part of working with Flint. You get the flakes and and it's not corn flakes, it's Flint's flakes, right, guys? (laughs) (laughs) And what we're going to do is we're going to have a segment show where we will have a lot of pre-recorded segments and those segments will be regular like we're going to do a lot more history we're going to touch on philosophy obviously a lot of theology things that we're going to do just for example um, we're going to have Cruzy doing his specialty of discernment we're going to do what we call a greek spot we'll do five minutes of um, something from new testament greek we'll also obviously try and include a little bit of 
humour here and there where we can. With Cliff in Turkey, we're going to do a segment called What Are You Reading This Week? And we're going to discuss what Cliff's reading or what we're reading at the time. And then Andy Tate is going to do, your specialty is going to be, well, I'll let you talk about that, Andy. What are you going to be doing for us? <laughs> well, I wouldn't call it my specialty, but it's just something that I, I kind of really <laughs> just uh, happened upon, if I can put it that way, in mm -hmm. part of reading that I was doing. And I'd started reading Eusebius's uh, History of the Church. And in that, I just I just thought, wow, there's, there's so many little nuggets in there that we can actually just focus on and then actually try to get to the core of some of them. Some of them will be more historical and some of them are just uh, stories. So like an early church history segment yeah. and look yeah. at what some of say, the early history of the church and what they thought and some of their writings. Now, do we have a title for that yet, no. Andy, or we still working on a title? <laughs> Another it's, Andy's Flint Flake. It's another flake. <laughs> I hope it's not flaky, but <laughs> I hope it's <laughs> I hope it's solid, <laughs> a solid flake. So um, yeah, that's that's going to be. And that we've come segment. up with that many titles for Cruzy's discernment <laughs> segment that, yes. um, and he's knocked them all back. So I'm not even going to bring them up because everything we've suggested, Cruzy said no, 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 and I'm not even going to say on air some of the ones that we've suggested. So oh. not 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 that he's being uh, recalcitrant in any way, but um, we've been teasing Cruzy a bit about that. But listen, I'll tell you the best I'm thing we could... I'm being No, 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 I'm not, you're not being difficult at all. I wasn't meaning to inter intimate that in any way, shape or form. Not, we'll discuss not even a little bit. We'll discuss bit. later. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, can, we can discuss later. Okay, so I want to get into our first episode and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about what each of us has been up to in the last few days. But I do want to quickly get to the first segment. So, Andy, could you introduce that for us and we'll straight at that. Yeah, we're going to go over to a little story that uh, Eusebius shares about a letter that was sent from Jesus to King Abgar. This is the story about the Prince of Edessa as recorded by Eusebius in his book, The History of the Church from Christ to Constantine. The story about Thaddeus is as follows. Because of his power to work miracles, the divinity of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ became in every land the subject of excited talk and attracted a vast number of people in foreign lands, very remote from Judea who came in the hope of being cured of diseases and disorders of every kind. Thus it happened that when King Abgar, the brilliantly successful monarch of the peoples of Mesopotamia, who was dying from a terrible physical disorder which no human power could heal, heard continual mention of the name of Jesus and unanimous tribute to his miracles, he sent a humble request to him by letter carrier begging for relief from his disease. Jesus did not immediately accede to his request, but honored him with a personal letter promising to send one of his disciples to cure his disease and at the same time to bring salvation to him and all his kin. In a very short time, the promise was fulfilled. After his resurrection and ascent into heaven, Thomas, one of the twelve apostles, was moved by inspiration to send Thaddeus himself in the list of Christ's seventy disciples to Edessa as preacher and evangelist of the teaching about Christ. Through him every word of our Saviour's promise was fulfilled. 
Written evidence of these things is available, taken from the record office at Edessa, at that time the royal capital. In the public documents there, embracing early history and also the events of Abgar's time, this record is found preserved from then till now, and the most satisfactory course is to listen to the actual letters which I have extracted from the archives and translated word for word from the Syriac as follows. This is a copy of the letter written by Abgar, the top arc to Jesus, and sent to him at Jerusalem by the courier Ananias. Abgar, Yuchama, the top arch to Jesus, who has appeared as a gracious saviour in the region of Jerusalem, greeting. I have heard about you and about the cures you perform without drugs or herbs. If report is true, you make the blind see again and the lame walk about. You cleanse lepers, expel unclean spirits and demons, cure those suffering from chronic and painful diseases, and raise the dead. When I heard all this about you, I concluded that one of two things must be true. Either you are God and came down from heaven to do these things, or you are God's Son doing them. Accordingly, I am writing to beg you to come to me, whatever the inconvenience, and cure the disorder from which I suffer. I may add that I understand that the Jews are treating you with contempt and desire to injure you. My city is very small, but highly esteemed, adequate for both of us. This is Jesus' reply to the top arch, Abgar, by the courier, Ananias. Happy are you who believed in me without having seen me. What is written of me that those who have seen me will not believe in me, and that those who have not seen will believe and live. As to your request that I should come to you, I must complete all that I was sent to do here, and on completing it, must at once be taken up to the one who sent me. When I have been taken up, I will send you one of my disciples to cure your disorder and bring life to you and those with you. To these letters is subjoined the following in Syriac. After Jesus was taken up, Judas, also known as Thomas, sent to him as an apostle for Deus, one of the seventy, who came and stayed with Tobias, son of Tobias. When his arrival was announced, and he had been made conspicuous by the wonders he performed, Abgar was told an apostle has come here from Jesus, as he promised you in his letter. Then Thaddeus began, in the power of God, to cure every disease and weakness, to the astonishment of everyone. When Abgar heard of the magnificent and astonishing things he was doing, and especially his cures, he began to suspect that this was the one to whom Jesus referred when he wrote in his letter, When I have been taken up, I will send you one of my disciples who will cure your disorder. So summoning Tobias, with whom Thaddeus was staying, he said, I understand that a man with unusual powers has arrived and is staying in your house and is working many cures in the name of Jesus. Tobias answered, Yes, sir, a man from foreign parts has arrived and is living with me and is performing many wonders. Abgar replied, Bring him to me. So Tobias went to Thaddeus and said to him, The top arch, Abgar, has summoned me and told me to bring you to him so that you can cure him. 
The Deus answered, I will present myself since the power of God has sent me to him. The next day Tobias got up early and escorted Thaddeus to Apgar. As he presented himself with the king's grandees standing there, at the moment of his entry a wonderful vision appeared to Apgar on the face of Thaddeus. On seeing it, Apgar bowed low before the apostle, and astonishment seized all the bystanders, for they had not seen the vision which appeared to Apgar alone. He questioned Thaddeus, Are you really a disciple of Jesus, the Son of God, who said to me, I will send you one of my disciples who will cure you and give you life? You wholeheartedly believed in the one who sent me, and for that reason I was sent to you, and again, if you believe in him, in proportion to your belief, shall the prayers of your heart be granted. Abkar says, I believe in him so strongly that I wanted to take an army and destroy the Jews who crucified him, if I had not been prevented from the imperial power of Rome from doing so. Thaddeus answers, Our Lord has fulfilled the will of his Father. After fulfilling it, he was taken up to the Father. I too have believed in him and in his Father. The day is said, for that reason, I lay my hand on you in his name. When he did this, Abgar was instantly cured of the disease and disorder from which he suffered. It surprised Abgar that the very thing that he had heard about Jesus had actually happened to him through his disciple, Thaddeus, who had cured him without drugs or herbs. And not only him, but also Abdus, son of Abdus, who had gout. He too came, and falling at his feet, found his prayer answered through the hands of Thaddeus and was cured. Many other fellow citizens of theirs, Thaddeus restored to health, performing many wonders and preaching the word of God. After this, Abgar said, It is by the power of God that you, Thaddeus, do these things. And we ourselves were amazed. But I have a further request to make. Explain to me about the coming of Jesus, and how it happened, and about his power. By what power did he do the things I have heard about? Thaddeus replied, For the time being I shall say nothing. But as I was sent to preach the word, be good enough to assemble, all your citizens tomorrow, and I will preach to them and sow in them the word of life about the coming of Jesus and how it happened, about his mission and the purpose for which his father sent him, about his power and his deeds and the mysteries he spoke in the world and the power by which he did these things and about his new preaching, about the lowliness and humility and how he humbled himself and put aside and made light of his divinity, was crucified and descended into Hades and rent asunder the partition, which had never been rent since time began, and raised the dead, how he descended alone but ascended with a great multitude to his Father, and how he is seated at the right hand of God the Father with glory in the heavens, and how he will come again with power to judge living and dead. After that he ordered gold and silver to be given to him, but the days refused them and asked, If we have left our own property behind, how can we accept other people's? Here we may leave for the present this valuable document, literally translated from Syriac. And so I'm just going to leave it there, but... What happens is that he does gather all his citizens and Thaddeus preaches to them and they all 
become believers. So I just thought this was a really, really interesting piece of the story by Eusebius. I find this fascinating. Obviously, it's from Eusebius, the history of the church, and it is a very fascinating story because in it is a report of this king, uh, Abgar, receiving a letter in reply from Jesus. But shortly, we're going to be bringing Cliff on because we're going to talk about some of the historical aspects of this whole thing. But just one thing I wanted to point out before we move on, I find this fascinating. It is in a footnote of the book, and as you were reading it, Andy, I was looking at it in Abgar's letter, when he says, uh, you make the blind see again and the lame walk about, you cleanse lepers, expel unclean spirits and demons, cure those suffering from chronic and painful diseases and raise the dead. In the footnote, it says it's similar to but not identical with the list that's in Matthew 11:5 and Luke 7, verse 2. So mm-hmm. I think that there is something going on here. There is some correlation. Obviously, he does have information about what Jesus is capable of and what Jesus was doing at the time. But the thing I wanted to add, and then the three of us can discuss it, was in the back of the copy of the book I have, it's got who's who in Eusebius. Mm -hmm. And in its note about Abgar, and this will be interesting too, and I'm going to ask you to comment too, Cliff, if you can. I'll just read it to you both. It says, Abgar, king or toparch of Edessa in Orsohon or Orsini, The legend of the Orsoni. So it says the legend of the correspondence between Jesus and Abgar is fabulous. Though Abgar V Ukama, the black, was king in Edessa during Jesus' ministry in Palestine. The legend perhaps reflects the favor to Christians in Edessa shown by Abgar IX the Great, who reigned from 179 to 214. The parallel version of the legend in the 5th century Doctrine of Adai in the history of the church relates that Abgar not only received a letter from Jesus, but also acquired a portrait of him. Of this, Eusebius knows nothing. So I guess what this little note here is saying, there's a question mark over which Abgar it was. Um, Can you shed any light on that, Cliff? You got any comments or... don't know which Abgar it was, but I, I do know a few things about the story. Uh, one thing I found really interesting about the story itself is that Jesus kind of paraphrases the part in the gospel where he says, uh, blessed is he who believes yet not sees, or something to that effect. And yeah. so this sending of Thomas there says a lot about, uh, first of all, Thomas and how he had changed from that time right immediately after the crucifixion to uh, the time of the story, okay? And how he goes to Abgar, who didn't even see Jesus, and uh, believes, and he and Thomas is the one that's sent. And that, I think, uh, is kind of a remarkable statement in itself, and I think it's deliberately part of the text for that reason. And it was never included in the Gospels because it was probably spurious. But people loved that letter, and it was passed around in the early church for a very long time. The thing is that Thomas definitely went there. Uh, he went to Edessa. Mm-hmm. So, so historical that Thomas went there? Yeah, that is historical. Okay, because according to this narrative, Thomas sends Thaddeus. Thaddeus. Uh-huh. Tell us about your journeys well, there, then. Well, I've been there twice, um, and there okay. is a church there. Uh, in fact, we talked a little bit about the Mandelian uh, when we were talking about the uh, chapel at uh, Rosslyn, 
That's right. Because I was telling you about when I first time I went, I didn't get the Mandelian. And some people think the Mandelian may have been the uh, Holy Grail. And some think that maybe the Shroud of Turin is that very thing. Thomas de Wesselo has a book on it uh, called The Sign, The Shroud of Turin, and The Secret of the Resurrection. Although he is a nasty uh, anti-Christian skeptic, uh, but he thinks that the uh, the Shroud of Turin came from Edessa. And, uh, and he's not the first to speculate that, but he's the first one to make claims to having real proof that there's a, a trail there. So where is Edessa now, Cliff? What's it called and where is it? Shanlurfa. It's, uh, it's in western or mm-hmm. eastern Turkey. It's very close okay. to the border with Syria. I'm up there because of Gebekli Tepe which uh, is just an incredible place. Uh, and there's all these legends of, um, of Abraham and... Uh, oh, yeah, I remember, yeah. Lotswell and all this stuff. Just an amazing place. But it, it's really old. Gebekli Tepe, they say, is 10,000 years old. Wow. The oldest temple in the world. So that, that's incredibly old. And it's uh, actually, it's, a, it's an artificial hill made out of flint. Out of flint of all things. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding, no <laughs> kidding. Uh, when I went there uh, to Gebekli Tepe, the kid who was, uh, well, he's an archaeologist student, he, he was left behind to deal with any tourists that came up. And I, I just happened to pop up over there, me and my driver, and he gave me a piece of flint. Uh, and it, it was clearly made from a core, and it, it was like a sharpening thing, uh, uh, like a razor or something. And he gave it to me wow. uh, for coming out. And uh, an archaeologist got on my case about that. And it's mm-hmm. like, hey, look, man, the guy gave it to me. Get off me. <laughs> wow. He also gave me grief about picking one up off the ground. So that started it. And it's like, now look at this one. And this, this kid, The kid that worked there gave it to me. He's like, why, why is he giving that out? That's what the driveway is. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The driveway yeah. man-made pieces of sharpened flint that they didn't yeah. use or they threw them away. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm. And the hill is artificial. They brought the flint mm. there. Truly amazing. Anyway. Sounds like an ad for our show. You're listening to Like Flint Radio. <laughs> yeah, got it, got it. Uh, and, and I hadn't told you about that. But uh, but the thing is, is that uh, Abgar was the king of the Armenians, actually. He was an Armenian king. And uh, he ruled over people who spoke um, uh, Syriac, of course. But... Uh, but Armenian was uh, not a language that was written. It was the, it was uh, actually just the people, and they were everywhere all through the Middle East and still are. But he was the king of Armenia, and the Armenians were one of the first people to become Christian. Wow. And they became Christian long before uh, the Roman Empire did. Uh, you had two, two kingdoms. Uh, I think Georgia also was before Rome. And they were both uh, on either side of Parthia or uh, Iran, you know, whatever you want to call it at the time. And uh, they were both Christian countries. Their king became Christian and then their people did. And that, that was true for both of them. And Edessa is, is where the, the Shroud of Turin possibly, or the Mandelian, which is the true icon of Jesus on cloth, uh, was taken. And there's a church there. In fact, it was originally a synagogue, then it became a church, and now it's a mosque uh, right there in uh, downtown Odessa. And uh, it's got a very remarkable minaret that uh, actually is shaped like a Star of David, hmm. although you can't see that from the angle where, where you're standing. You can see it from heaven, though. <laughs> and that uh, church is where they kept the Mandelian, supposedly. 
And when the Arabs conquered the city, well, not long after they took uh, Jerusalem, they penetrated that far north. The people in the church threw the Mandelian down in the well so that the uh, Arabs couldn't get their hands on it, maybe desecrate it. So it was rescued out of there and probably sent to uh, Byzantium. And that might be how the Shroud of Turin ended up in, uh, in Turin. So really, really interesting uh, cluster of things that come together with this story. Fascinating. You, uh, you are correct there. I had no idea that these things converged there. Do we have any idea on what dates that might have been where it was thrown down the well? Hang on a second. I, I can actually probably give it to you here. It has to be 7th century, would it be? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, not long after Muhammad died, probably 7th century, maybe 8th, but I think it was 7th. Maybe 8th, yeah. Okay. It was taken at 609 by the Sassanids and uh, taken back by Heraclius, then lost to the Muslims in 638. Okay, so yeah, 7th century, okay. Yeah, yeah, pretty early in it, too. Because uh, they, they moved very fast when they swept through uh, Jerusalem and then up through Syria. Uh, and, and, and Edessa uh, is right there. It is literally practically on the border of uh, Syria. I went very close to the border, going to the main highway after leaving to go to uh, Antakya for the first time I went. And we went right past Carchemish, which, uh, which is in the Bible. Really interesting area. I, I, I love traveling in the East. Uh, there's just so many little mysteries there, and it's just, just fabulous. Talk about Nimrod uh, and, uh, and Abraham confronting each other, things like this. Just really interesting stuff. So what do you make of this exchange of letters? What are your thoughts? Well, they, they've been called spurious. Some people were, mm. were thinking it might have been uh, Jesus' own hand, and it, it actually could kind of sound plausibly like it, you know, because they're, they're paraphrasing the Bible quite a bit in his, uh, in his writing. Yeah, yeah. It was considered spurious. So, so you, have to, you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. But it, do, okay. it does relate some truths. I mean, one of them is that the people in that area were among the first nation to become Christian. The church early went there. I mean, they went there very early and were tolerated at a very early point. Uh, there, there were persecutions. I think uh, Andrew was uh, was executed in Armenia and uh, things like that. But, you know, the thing is, is that that part of the world opened first. It opened before Rome did, and it became Christian at a very early point. Um, so, so in the in the in the modern location now, you know, you said there is a church there. Do they have any icons to Thomas or Thaddeus or anything there at no, all? No, it, it, it's still an operating mosque. Those are all covered over. Oh, uh, there's, okay, uh, there's okay, a couple sorry, yeah, okay. of mosques here in Istanbul that they've uh, uncovered the uh, the paintings and things. Yeah. It's harder to get to do it in the east. They're they're not as open minded there. I find that fascinating. It's a fascinating story. And another part that we actually didn't go on to read was the part where Abgar said that he would have destroyed the Jews. And I thought, wow, why did the guy say this? And he said, because in his letter to Jesus, mm-hmm. he said to Jesus that he understood that, um, you know, Jesus was being treated with contempt by the Jews and that they were trying to harm him. And um, if it wasn't for the the might of Imperial Rome, he would have invaded Judea and 
and um, destroyed the Jews. I find that fascinating because that's another thing that I have never read or heard about before. Have either of you heard that before? Cliff will go you first and then you, Andy. Yeah, well, I read uh, that a long time ago. I have the letter of Ebgar in uh, my, yeah. one, of, one of my books on um, different early Christian documents. Mm-hmm. And like I say, uh, they, it was rejected as spurious by the church, although there were a lot of people that passed it from church to church uh, because it was uh, yeah, it was interesting and it had a lot in it. But uh, that's uh, probably one of the earliest examples of kind of an anti-Semitism uh, from the mm-hmm. church. Although you've got to figure, you know, the, the uh, Jews were very hard on the early church. And that uh, that anger between the two uh, just never, ever has really lightened up very much. And so this is a document of that. And in fact, I'm on the understanding that uh, Eusebius himself was a very early anti-Semite. Uh, I guess some of the things that he wanted uh, Constantine to do were pretty hard on the Jews. So that uh, would kind of go hand in hand in a way. But like I say, these are both early examples of that. Sure. And, and, I, and, I, do, and yeah, I do find that interesting. Yeah, so do I. I haven't heard it before. Andy, your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I've also not heard it before. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, that the thing that comes to mind is just how Jesus, uh, when he is standing before Pilate, says, you know, if my kingdom was of this world, I would have sent in. Yeah. <laughs> I would have had my army come in and, and, yeah, uh, yeah, my, and rescue my, me. Yes, so, that's right. Um, I guess, you know, that's just something to kind of throw in there because obviously Jesus would not have expected Abgar to to do such a thing. Exactly. But I still find it quite interesting that he had heard that, if indeed this is a true story, but that he had heard these rumors that Jesus was under attack by the Jews and even that he would actually write to him and say, you know, my kingdom is big enough for the two of us. Yes, I I (laughs) I found that was actually quite sweet, Mm. really. I, 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 I was fascinated by that. Well, we'll move on from this segment, I think, but I'll just finish by saying that according to the book, The History of the Church here by Eusebius, he says that all this happened in the year 340 of the Seleucid era, it's supposed supposed to be, and they think apparently this was meant to be around AD 30 the probable year of the ascension it says here in the footnote so for me cliff's comments there about the very earliest or maybe even the you know shall we say some of the first ideas of i'm going to say inverted commas anti-semitism um that we have in the early writings if it's you know to be taken as fair income as the aussies say So that was super interesting, and I, I really think you could probably make a living or as a sideline reading ancient manuscripts, Andy. <laughs> I love until I, love I get to all the Latin names, or the Greek names, or the way they pronounce. <laughs> Those are quite. Epic. I love. I love. I enjoyed the music that went along with that, but also, Andy, a couple of things there. What was going on? What was going on with Cliff when we spoke to him about that segment? What was oh, he doing? Oh, yeah. I should have said that it's a story time with Cliff and his coffee <laughs> because 
he was actually just taking his iPad through to the kitchen and making coffee while we were recording. So it was quite funny. So I've tried to get rid of some of the teaspoon stirring of the coffee cup, but um, I don't know. I think there's going to be a little bit in there. So I hope you enjoyed that uh, coffee time and story time with Cliff and Andy and GK. As our American friends will know, all Americans enjoy their coffee no matter where they are. And I know that Cliff enjoys the coffee, so there you go. But then again, so does Cruzy. Yeah, right? exactly. I, I just want to just say, just take note, it's not Cruzy and his coffee this time, it's not Cliff. <laughs> exactly. Good point. <laughs> this, time it, this time it was not me. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if we've spoken about it before, but sometimes in the past, and sorry about this, Cruzy, you can beat me up later, but sometimes in the past, <laughs> Andy has had to go and collect Cruzy so that we could, you know, do a recording together. And you know that I'm not sure how long the journey is, but I'm guessing maybe 30 minutes, but he has to stop for a coffee on the way. And I was quite stunned and amazed that that was happening. So there we go. We can have a dig at um, Cliff for the coffee and leave Cruzy alone this time, even though I just shared that little nugget that... The thing is, the trip feels about two hours if you, if you don't have coffee. So um, it just makes the trip <laughs> feel, feel a bit shorter. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And I'm not hinting at Andy's driving. No, I wouldn't do anything like that. Never. <laughs> Was that to calm <laughs> your nerves? Is that what you're trying to say, Chrissy? <laughs> oh, I didn't see it from that angle. Oh, my So really... Goodness. Really, that was that was commentary on um, Andy's driving, not Cruzy's need for coffee. So there you go. I just I no, not necessarily, but I was just always thinking, you know, if I die, it might as well be this coffee in my hand. So um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm just kidding, Andy. I'm just kidding. It, it's not that bad. Hey, <laughs> moving right along from coffee, guys, because I, I think I've said more than enough. And let me tell you, dear listener. As soon as we probably stop recording, I'm going to cop it from all three of these, my, my co-hosts. I'm sorry. Hey, Cruzy, before we move on to your segment, did you want to share with us what you've been up to in the last couple of days? Um, a new show and all, I thought we'd make a personal touch. What have you been doing? Um, well, yesterday I had a quite interesting day. Um, I was, um, can I say this on a Christian show? I was technically getting high. <laughs> um, don't get scared, folks. I was just getting high onto a ladder and onto a roof um, and onto a mask. We were redoing our connection, which is also my internet connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, let's just say it was a lot of fun in the sun. And today I'll be the consequences of that. How high up were you? Well, I didn't get too high up the mask, luckily. Okay. Uh, luckily, they didn't expect me to do that. Uh, yeah. But we had one guy that was crazy enough to wear harness and get up... Uh, I think it's at least nine meters up into the air, Ooh. and that's on top of a roof as well. Um, yeah. Whoa! That's that's minus the roof. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, okay. Fun but hard work. <laughs> and did you sunscreen? Where was your bush hat? Did you wear your bush hat? You know, I, I do these randomly funny things. You know, like think to myself, no, I'm not going to need sunscreen. So yeah, that was my first bad mistake. My second mistake was to wear flip flops or flip flops, like they call it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So my, my feet felt like I've been doing fire walking or something. Um, but yeah, apart from that, all good and it was all fun. So they're called flip-flops over there. In New Zealand, they're called jandals, but I'm not going to tell you what they're called in Australia mm-hmm. because some people will misunderstand. Mm. Correct, Andy? That's correct. Absolutely right, yes. <laughs> so um, please Google what flip-flops are called in Australia because I'm not going to discuss it. This is a family show. So... <laughs> hey, <laughs> 
So, Cruzy, can you tell us how's your nose? Oh, that's right, yeah. Well, what happened? What's the story? Uh, well, I had a slight cricket accident. Um, people have been ripping me off a bit about it, like saying I've been trying to catch the ball with my nose instead of my hands and things like that. I think I cracked my nose because it was a little bit too quick for me. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, it's all good, and I don't have blue eyes anymore, or black eyes, like they would call it. I'm, <laughs> I'm back to my regular color. Um, yeah, all good. <laughs> good. Oh, my goodness. Always an adventure in Cruzy Land, it seems. Yeah, I've seen the photo that you posted, and you're pretty banged up. Mm. So you have had some great adventures, and uh, I'll put that in air quotes that you can't see, but great adventures in the transition to the new show. What we'll do now, if you don't mind, Cruzy, we're going to go to your segment. Would you mind just introducing your segment, and then we'll play that? We can have a bit of a listen to a Patricia King video, um, and we're just going to analyse them and talk about that from a biblical perspective a bit, and whether we should be listening to extra-biblical revelation or not. Yeah, let's have a listen to that. Can, can I just ask one question before we hit it? Um, how many times does she mention the word fire in this one? Is, is it a theme? Yeah, it's pretty much right through. Um, I think okay. that's pretty much the topic right. of the whole video. All right. And um, I think that's a good place to start when it comes to discernment, is just sure. getting that straight. All right. So, okay. yeah. Let's sit that. Um, Andy, if you don't mind, the technician, push the button for us, please. Ka-ching. <laughs> I love that. Ka-ching. <laughs> share some insights for the new year for 2014. The Lord has given me a number of them already, but I just want to share a few of them. Whoa, let's stop right there. Um, the Lord gave you prophetic insights for this year, apart from the Bible. What do you think about it, Freddie? I'm going slightly mad. I'm going slightly mad. Yeah, that was probably not the right guy to ask. Well, I am Cruzy, and you are at Cruzy's Discernment Corner, or the CDC. No relation whatsoever to the Center for Disease Control. So what are we talking about tonight? So I'm going to play a bit of a clip from our prophetess, uh, Patricia King. I use the term prophetess very loosely. And then afterwards, I will just... Raise a few comments and maybe play some uh, clips from the Strange Fire Conference where they actually addressed some of these issues. So let's get right into it. Um, I'm going to play this clip now and uh, just listen carefully what she's saying and just see if you think it lines up with the Word of God. I want to share some insights for the new year for 2014. The Lord has given me a number of them already, but I just want to share a few of them. And one of the things I see is this emergence of fire. You're going to be hearing a lot about the baptism with fire in 2014. 
In fact, there will be the manifestations of fire that are actually going to confront issues of the soul that are out of alignment to God's purposes. But also that fire is going to bring an invitation for purity, for healing, and for deliverance. You're going to see, you know, visitations of the Lord come in fire to literally set people free from afflictions, uh, from physical infirmity, from uh, habits, from addictions, from all kinds of different things. And in the gathering of people together in meetings, you are actually going to uh, see demonstrations of the fire come. It's going to hit the different nations of the world. And many people are going to come forward with messages about the fire and songs about the fire. In fact, fire is going to be highlighted in 2014. I think this is a good place to stop for now. Um, when I watched the Strange Fire Conference, they actually brought up this topic about the fire, and they actually had quite an interesting discussion on it. Todd Friel will be speaking here to um, Tom Pennington and John MacArthur about the word fire. The word fire, calling down fire from heaven, is a persistent theme that we hear. Theologically, do we want fire to come from heaven? In, in the context, and Justin can point this out too, a lot of the conversation is about feeling a burning, being set on fire, thereby calling the fire down from heaven. Theologically, how do we respond to this prayer to call down fire from heaven? I, I can only assume that they're, they're referencing Acts 2, taking an image that is tied to a larger context. The fire there is defined, as even we were talking about this morning, in clear and discernible ways. It, Essentially, ultimately, it was representative of the, of the Spirit's coming, and the Spirit's expression was in the gift of tongues for a specific purpose, to confirm the apostles, to confirm what he was doing, as R.C. said yesterday, in, in now bringing out a people for himself, confirming that the Jews were, in fact, going to be a part of the church. And so it, it has a context, but instead it's, it's removed from that context and, and made to mean something just strictly experiential. Yeah, and again, the, that's a non-repeatable event. Pentecost, as we heard from R.C., Pentecost and then the subsequent uh, exact same reality occurs in those different people groups. Um, to, to somehow turn uh, Pentecost into this kind of mockery uh, uh, as if you could literally call down fire from heaven uh, is not only unbiblical, it's just folly, but it's more than that. It's manipulation. It, it's all about mind control. Rodney Howard Brown is a mind manipulator. Now, he's been doing this for a long time. He's a lot skinnier now, but he's been doing the same thing for a long, long time. If you see him on TV now, you might not recognize him. That's why I said that. Um, this is mind control, mind manipulation from a human viewpoint. Um, even more frightening is this, this is demonic from a from a supernatural viewpoint. Um, fire came down from heaven, of course, in Leviticus 10 and consumed uh, the worshipers, consumed the ones who offered the sacrifice. That's the whole point of this conference. Um, John talked about fire baptism, John the Baptist, and that was judgment. I really don't... Th th these people are so ah-biblical. Uh, they're so acquainted with words, Bible words without Bible sentences, Bible words without Bible context, Bible words without Bible doctrine. 
They throw the words around and they become means by which they manipulate people's minds. Uh, fire is obviously an incendiary word. It, it has all kinds of implications of heat and uh, power and energy. And I mean, that's a perfect word for them to use to manipulate people. Um, the next time fire comes from heaven, um, it's going to engulf the world in judgment. Uh, God will not uh, drown the world in water again, but he will end the world in fire. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. It's going to be an atomic implosion, the uncreation, when the elements melt with fervent heat. Uh, that is fire from heaven. And I don't think anybody in his right mind would be calling down fire from heaven because that's, that's going forward, that is a judgment metaphor after Pentecost. You will be baptized by the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's, that's another baptism and that's a judgment. We also know that since Rosh Hashanah, um, you know, in, in September, October of last year, that there's been a uh, movement of the Spirit to open doors for His people. Doors that cannot be closed when God opens it. Doors that no man can shut. And God's going to open for you doors that are going to surprise you, that you're going to go through new doors that will have new realms of blessing for you. Yes, um, because the gospel is all about you, right? Wrong. The gospel is all about Jesus. Did anyone else notice that she's just talked about blessing and when she talked about fire, she mentioned the word fire. Let me count here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yes, I actually counted it. She mentioned the word fire nine times. I have not heard Jesus make an appearance at all in this prophecy. In, in transition, but there's this shift coming that is really changing the face of Christianity. You are going to see in this coming year the younger generation raised up into apostolic leadership. I think I'm going to fast forward a little bit. There's only so much of this I can really listen to. Um, and then we'll get to a nice important piece. A scripture out of uh, Daniel 7. Okay, most of us will be familiar with Daniel 7. He deals with the Antichrist and now the saints will be delivered into his hands for three and a half years. And somehow she totally messes up this text and she uses it as words of encouragement of how the saints in 2014 will conquer Satan and his schemes. And this kind of sums up what I'm, I'm, I'm sensing. It says, he will speak out against the Most High. This is verse 25, by the way, of Daniel 7. And wear down the saints of the Most High. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times and half time. In other words, it might appear like we're losing a battle, but don't ever believe it. Don't believe it. We win. Say that out, out loud right now. We win. God's agenda wins. But the court will sit for judgment. And this is a divine court. This is a, a heavenly court that's going to make a judgment. And his dominion, the enemy's dominion, will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. 
And so no matter what you hear, no matter what you see, do not believe that the enemy wins. It might look like he is for a season on certain political agendas, but you will see things shift. A day will come when everything will shift. So hold steady when it looks like we're losing the battle. Whoa, boy. I can't believe that. Um, you know, it, it, it strikes me as funny. If she's a, if she's a prophetess, don't you think God would have taken just 20 seconds of his time and just said to her, um, just make sure you use my word in context? The other thing to have your eye on in 2014 is China. There is going to be a, a tension within the nation of China because in China you have the largest most powerful church in the world a lot of it is underground but a lot of it is is coming out of the closet and being blessed by God in visibility that is going to accelerate the harvest in China is going to continue and they're going to be leading the body of Christ in in teachings and mindsets concerning even things to do with Israel and God's heart for Israel. But the Chinese church is going to receive a lot of healing. There's going to be mobilization of ministries worldwide to go into China to help heal the uh, wounds that have come through the time of persecution. But we must be careful, especially the Western church, not to bring things into the mindset of the Chinese church that are twisted, not from God. Like your videos? Out of a Western perspective. The other tension that's going to go on in China is that there is going to be an antichrist movement in the nation as well that is going to war. There will be tensions in the nation there. So we need to pray for the nation of China. It's absolutely important that we pray for God's purposes, his peace and his love to be over that nation. Otherwise, um, anti-Christ agendas could start to emerge on a global scale. Uh, there's going to be a lot of um, ministries, though, that will be traveling to China in 2014 uh, to partner with the Chinese church. It's going to be an amazing season. Well, there are many other things that I could say. I do have a message on uh, believers' uh, provision, uh, which is secure, by the way. Um, that is another message that I have online called She Smiles at the Future. And it is worth uh, listening to that message. And um, so uh, please uh, pray into that because believers are going to be in great shape in 2014 and beyond. In fact, if you listen to the whole message, you'll find that for believers who walk in their covenant promise and take hold of the promises of God, that there will be seven years of great abundance coming for you. And so um, God bless you. 2014 is a great year. And there will be many other things unfolded prophetically um, over time. But um, the Lord wants you to know that when you walk with him, all things are good. Here's a prophetic word that is for you now and forever. It's this. God loves you with an everlasting love. He really, really does. I'm sure every one of you are as glad as I am that that is finished. Um, it boils down to the question, do we need prophets today and do we still have prophets today? Now, the track record is not looking good for those who claim to have special revelation from God. You can just think back about Montanus with... Uh, Montanus and uh, Priscilla and Maximilla 
and at a later stage Joseph Smith, and then at a later stage the Kansas City Prophets, who, um, you know, it was totally acceptable for them to have a 66% uh, success rate, which is not biblical. And as the Bible says to us, we must test everything by the word, and if what a prophet says doesn't come true, he's not sent by God. In the New Testament, the gift of the office of the prophet was a temporary one granted by God for the purpose of building his church. Contrary to the apostles who had broad ministries, these men had localized ministries within local churches as we, sorry, as we see illustrated in such places as Acts 11 verse 21 to 28 and Acts 13 verse 1. Scripture shows us that the prophets of the New Testament had two primary purposes. They were gifted men given to the church and appointed by God, Ephesians 4 verse 11, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 28, for the purpose of helping to lay the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2 verse 20. They, like the apostles, received God's revelation, Ephesians 3 verse 5, and truth and proclaimed it to their churches. It is important to remember that the early church did not have a completed Bible, so God granted this revelation for the purpose of teaching his message to the church. The New Testament prophets also spoke forth and taught the apostles' doctrine. Everything taught by these prophets had to be consistent with the teaching of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 36 to 37 So are there still prophets needed today? Looking at the two functions listed above, we can see that the office of the prophet is one that is no longer necessary and has ceased within the church because firstly the foundation of the church was laid long ago and secondly God's revealed word was completed with the close of the New Testament canon. The church's foundation does not need to be laid again and there is no need for further revelation beyond what God has provided for us in his complete word, the Bible. Today we are blessed to have scripture as our complete and final authority on all things. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 and 70. If someone now claims to have a special revelation, we must test this against scripture. If it's contrary to the word of God, then it must be rejected. If it's consistent with the scripture, then we have to ask why an extra word was necessary if its truth is already contained in the Bible. So while we always need men who are willing to proclaim boldly the, the word of God, as contained in the scripture, there is no need for the office of prophet as it existed in the New Testament. Well, that was a nice description I found on carm.org's website. Unfortunately, I've run out of time for today, and I hope you guys enjoyed your time with me, and I will be back very soon with you guys. God bless. Bye-bye. And there you have it. Cool. So that was Cruzy. That was his first discernment spot. And that was very cool. I think we, we really do need to be careful with what we listen to. That particular video is concerning on so many levels, as Cruzy's obviously spoken about. And we're going to go next to GK's Greek Corner, which I'm very excited about, because this was one of the spots I was looking forward to in our new show. So, uh, G, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I like doing, like on my own personal blog site, just what I call the Greek spot. It's just little tiny snippets of New Testament Greek that give more insight to what's going on in the Bible. So 
we decided that, okay, well, let's do that on the new show and just do just small, like five to ten minutes and we'll pull something out. What we're going to listen to tonight, and I won't talk much more because I do explain it, is one of the favourite things that I've learnt since I've learnt Greek. Greek with eyes are. So let's play that. Well, welcome to our first Greek spot with GK. A um, couple of things before we get started on our first little bit of Greek that we're going to do. Um, this won't be a, a Greek course in any way, shape or form. Um, that's why we call it Greek Spot. It'll just be a little bit of a, um, a short part of our show. Um, I highly recommend it for yourself, um, if you're interested in biblical languages, to go and learn New Testament Greek. And, um, of course, also Hebrew, if that's at all possible. When I first started, I... Um, I began teaching myself um, New Testament Greek and then uh, Mike Heiser, Dr. Mike Heiser offered, um, in, in the first year that he offered um, uh, New Testament Greek, I, I did that one year course with, with him and have continued to um, be self-taught since then. And I'm not saying that you have to learn Greek to be able to understand what the New Testament talks, talks about at all. I mean, if you English speaker, Get yourself an, a good English Bible and away you go. But um, a little bit of Greek opens up a whole lot more to you if you're interested in further, deeper study. But there's no way, shape or form am I saying that you have to be able to read New Testament Greek to understand what the Bible says. Get a Bible in your language and read it. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious. Another thing to note will be that um, we don't know how... Um, you know, in first the first century, how Greek words were pronounced. So, if I pronounce it differently to the way you've heard it or learnt it, well, that won't be a surprise. Um, the easiest way to learn Kine or New Testament Greek is to do use the Erasmus pronunciation, which I do. Um, it sounds absolutely nothing like, um, say, modern Greek, um, but because you sound uh, the letters out as they look you know it's a lot easier way to learn it so I just point out that you know I'd ask you to ignore the way I pronounce them because they're not necessarily the correct way um, and um, as I stated earlier no one knows how it was pronounced anyway um, we've got some ideas from how maybe the modern Greek speakers speak but there are a couple of different types of Greek between us and Kine Greek so you know um, that's another story. And as I said, this will not be in any way, shape or form a thorough Greek course. So let's get started. Ah, uh, gee, what, it just kind of cut, so... What happened there? Are you going to make us wait for a whole month before we hear your actual oh, first uh, quick spot? I just thought since it was going to be the, you know, I thought it was going to be the shortest segment of the show that I thought I'd better build it up a bit and so we create a bit of interest and then we might hit it. What do you, was that not the right thing to do or? It's unfair. It's really unfair. Are you seriously going to keep us waiting for so long? Well, let, wait a minute. Let me push the button from my end, and then we'll go into it, all right? So, okay. ka-ching! <laughs> well, welcome to our first Greek spot. In this first episode of our Greek spot, 
I want to um, share something with you um, that is one of my favourite things that I've learnt so far um, whilst learning um, New Testament Greek. And um, you can find this on my uh, personal blog at likeflint.blogspot.com. But anyway, this is one of my favourites. So what, if you want to follow along, um, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're just going to look at three verses because um, we just want to keep this short and brief. Um, and I hope I'm able to make my point in a very short time. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 16. I'll read them for you now, or you can read them read along yourself as well. And then we'll dig into this a bit and see what we can pull out of this from the Greek. Now, as I always often find, there is just so much in, you know, verse by verse uh, teaching in, in the Bible that there are so many things in this that we could cover, um, and especially in um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But obviously, as I've made the point, we want to remain brief, but um, believe me, there is just so much in just these few little verses that we're going to look at. Anyway, so let's start with um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 to 16. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay, so now the point I'm going to make here is um, in verse 15, Paul writes to Timothy and says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Now, some versions will have, now I think the NIV will have Holy Scriptures, NASB has sacred writings, King James has Holy Scriptures. But in Greek, and bearing in mind, as I stated earlier, um, uh, pronunciation uh, is nothing in modern terms. It's, it's basically um, however we can explain it to each other. We don't know how it was properly pronounced. So that couple of words there that in the NASB has sac- as, as sacred writings is... Hiera Grammata. And then in the next verse, in verse 16, we have all scripture. Now, in this part where Paul's talking about scriptures, he just uses the the term graphe, which um, is the most common term for scripture in, in New Testament Greek. Um, the hierogrammata, which I mentioned earlier, is quite rare. What do we? We want to know what is going on here. What did we? Why did Paul decide to use two different terms when he was talking about the scriptures? You know, one verse after the other. As I said before, the vast majority of times that the scriptures are mentioned in the New Testament, John uh, chapter five thirty nine is an example. The word used in Greek is graphe or graphe. And it's often used in conjunction with the word holy for the Holy Scriptures. Um, you can see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 2. But as I pointed out, in this instance, Paul chose to use the words hiera, sacred, 
Dramata writings. The word hieros is used only a couple of times in the New Testament. The other time it's used is in 1 Corinthians 9.13. It's translated there as holy things, sacred services, or temple, depending on which translation is being read. Um, and Now, I find it fascinating that Paul chose this term to refer to the scriptures in this instance, instead of the more commonly used term graphe, which we find in verse 16. So what's going on? Here's what I think. I didn't come up with this idea myself. I found this through research and um, it's fascinated me ever since. But perhaps, and you can research this for yourself, perhaps the sacred writings that are mentioned in verse 15, the Hiera Grammata, refer to the Old Testament alone. And because it seems to be something, you know, deeper, reverent, and something to do a, a, a more sacred idea. Okay, so perhaps he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures that, that Timothy would have learnt, you know, sitting on his grandmother's lap and at his mother's knee. And then perhaps in verse 16, Paul's referring to the writings of what we would call the New Testament. And furthermore... Perhaps verse 16 refers to both the New Testament and the Old Testament scriptures. But it's hard to say in any hard and fast way. But there is definitely something going on here because he did choose to use two different terms uh, when talking about the scriptures. And like I keep repeating, you know, they're just one verse apart. So have a little dig for yourself and see what you think. I really hope you know, what I've just shared with you will encourage you to dig a little bit further into your Bible, into your scriptures and find out what's going on, what's there and, and therefore we can learn more about what God has in store for us and what he would have us know about his word and his scriptures. Anyway, I hope that's been an encouragement for you and we'll see you next time at our Greek spot at lightflintradio.com. Bye-bye now. So now I'm really happy. <laughs> I really enjoyed that, G. That was super, super cool. And, Excellent. Um, I'm, yeah. keen, I'm keen to do some more. Yeah. Well, something I just wanted to mention, and we will go into this a little bit later, but we do have a new website now. And something I want to do just specifically with the Greek Spot is on the homepage, every time there's a current show up, I'm going to try and include Flint Flakes also with that current show. So you'll see there's a little player on the right-hand corner of our homepage with the current show there if you want to hear it just there. Or you can obviously download it and hear it um, in your own time. But with that, there will be also various bits of flakes. And what I want to do is I want to make one of those the Greek spot because it just means that if you want to follow just the Greek spot, you can download that on its own individually and keep that in a folder somewhere. So you don't have to wade through a whole show just to hear that. So um, I'm just letting you know about that. Um, Good idea. Because I think, yeah, it will be a very cool thing. It's a great little resource and something that you can use in your own personal study of the word and stuff. Okay, so G, over to you. Tell us a little bit about how you've been and uh, what you've been doing. Uh, well, I've been um, doing quite a few things. I think if people are on my Facebook friends list will know that I had a accident and you know um, we recorded last show oh, yes. show 73 I actually recorded that show with concussion and um, whiplash 
from a small backyard accident. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm still recovering from that. And the doctor said that, you know, the headaches and that might continue for a little while. So I appreciate press for that. So that's on the negative side. But on the upside, things have been pretty good. I mean, as it is in South Africa, it's quite warm here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Today was a beautiful afternoon, you know, and we're surrounded by some really good neighbours. And I just noticed we're all out in our backyard this afternoon. All of us are out there. We're watering plants and having barbecues and, you know, talking to our neighbours over the fence. Had a really good day today. Oh, that's so nice. But one thing I wanted to share uh, with you guys was last night I got to meet a couple of Israeli guys who were in Australia for a short time and may have the chance to meet up with them again. But one of them was uh, an Israeli paratrooper and the other guy's a combat engineer. Mm-hmm. And so I got to try out my Hebrew. Oh. I haven't tried out my conversational Hebrew for so long, so it was really good. And they taught me a few new words. And the main thing I was after when I was talking to them was pronunciation. Mm. So they've been in Australia for a little while, so they're sort of getting used to the Aussie way of pronouncing English. But I wanted to get some real... Israeli way of pronouncing the Hebrew. So I had some great fun with those guys last night and I'm going to pass on the address to our show hopefully and they might get to hear us. So I'll just give a shout out to Uzi and Yuval and it was Shabbat last night for those guys. Hmm. So we had some lovely kosher wine with them to see the end of Shabbat. Not that I'm Hebrew roots or anything like that, but it was great to share that time with them and share a bit of culture with them and obviously a bit of our culture, uh, you know, Aussie culture, and even we discussed Christianity a little bit, just a little bit. Hmm. But um, it was a good time. So that's what I've been doing um, in the last couple of days. So appreciate people's prayers for my concussion, which I'm still recovering from. But other than that, I'm back into it. But I know that you've got something up your sleeve, Andy, that you're going to surprise us all with. Oh. You recorded something as an outtake from somewhere along the line, and um, it's a bit, of, a bit of fun. So I'm going to suggest we throw to that, and when we come back, we can talk to you about what you've been up to lately, if you don't mind, Andy. Sure. Sound good? Here we go. Because Cliffy... And I'm eating my pie Which is a flapjack. Okay, let's just say something here. G is munching on his pie something or other. What a pie? Pie clip. Pie clip. That's what he's calling it. I'm calling that thing a flapjack. Um, What would would you call it? Because it's like a little Uh, mini pancake. A mini pancake? A little mini pancake, yeah. Well, a little pancake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pancakes, pancakes. Uh, Is there something in it? What is on it? Uh, G, butter and jam. And I think he said he wanted to have some no. cream on it or something, some whipped cream. But um, Yeah, I just looked it up. And Americans do call it pancakes, hot cake, or a flapjack. So, But we call it a pie cake. Okay. And we call mm-hmm. it a flapjack. Yeah. No, I like flapjack. There we go. So that's, that's what G is munching on. <laughs> yeah, look, I was thinking in South Africa they should be called kook and wonder schnitzeling. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm wrong. I got that wrong, apparently. It doesn't mean that at all. It means nothing. Apparently, I made the word up. <laughs> well, I mean, pancake in Afrikaans would be panakuk. Panakuk. But, See, I was um... close. See, cook. See, funda. Maybe I'm pronouncing it properly. Sorry, my Afrikaans is way off. Kuka vunda schnitzeling. Yeah, schnitzeling has got nothing to do with flapjack, okay? <laughs> Schnitzeling uh, is a word you just made up. <laughs> All right, okay. All 
Well, we have uh, chicken schnitzel over here. Yeah. Uh, well, they don't call it chicken schnitzel. They call it tabu. Tabu schnitzel. Yeah. They're good. Uh, now, they'll also do a... Now, they do a... They don't call it cordon blue. They call it gordon blue. Cordon blue. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. No kidding. Uh, but but it, they don't put the ham in it. Oh, okay. What they'll do is they'll, they'll put a, a kind of a cheese sauce inside on top of the schnitzel, uh-huh. uh, inside the breading. Oh, wow. And it's okay. uh, it's pretty nice. Hmm. It's really not too bad. That sounds good. But they don't use um, the ham. Uh, well, well, ham is usually made out of beef over here. And uh, same with uh, same with bacon. So right. they, it would be they, here, too, if it was halal, halal meat. Uh, yeah, they, yeah, they it has to be probably not have any pork. So, yeah, yeah nope. it would be halal. In, yeah. in, in but, Afrikaans. Uh, in Afrikaans, yeah. Very <laughs> man, I do not speak Afrikaans. Yes, It's panakuk. called panakuk. Cook. Yeah. <laughs> cook. Yes. So, not, I was not close, cook. all right? Not cook. 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 <laughs> cook. 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 Can't you see? Can't you see? You gotta wake up slow. Kaching. <laughs> <laughs> so that was just a little bit so, of a um, cultural spot. <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> everybody taken off guard. I can assure you. But it was very difficult. We did explain that when we recorded with Cliff for my Eusebia spot. At that stage, he was making coffee. And I think he was also eating soup. G was busy eating these. What do you call them, G? Uh, flapjacks. <laughs> I'm not saying it anymore. Because <laughs> I getting... oh, never saying that word again and getting caught recorded saying it. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's the pie clip or something. I can't. I can't even say it. I can't even. I, I need to get Let's, it. You know what? We're going to put it on our it on our no, no. page. We need to actually write it down so people can say because I'm not even pronouncing we'll it properly. There you go. We'll put a link link to that in the show notes. Yeah, we, we'll put down all those little uh, things just out of interest. And we, we might even include the word that GK made up all by himself too <laughs> <laughs> for all those linguists around that might want to add it okay. to the dictionary. Um, so, yeah, where are we? So we were going to talk a little bit about um, what I've been up to. Yeah, because Cruzy was climbing towers. <laughs> and um, I've been barbecuing in the backyard mm-hmm. and, you know, meeting Israeli tourists. And had a great time. So what have you been up to? Mine's going to sound so boring, I think, by comparison. But I've been mostly just trying to work on our, our new website and just getting that up and going. So that's actually been quite interesting. And I really hope everyone enjoys it. Um, so it's just www.likeflintradio.com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's just that. <laughs> now, look, I know how much time you spend on that. And, you know, while Cruz is climbing towers and I'm barbecuing, mm-hmm. you've been sweating uh, building our website. So we're ever, uh, ever grateful for that. Um, oh, and Cruzy can take you out for a coffee sometime. Oh, soon. thanks, right, Cruzy. That's so nice of you. <laughs> yeah, I always like offering you. Uh... <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we can do a cat down coffee here. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's cool. And some panakook. And some panakook. Panakook. How, how, how do we panakuk. actually really okay. say panakook? Because I'd like to hear that in Afrikaans, please, Crazy, because I tried my best, but I don't think I pronounced it well. And GK was definitely not pronouncing it very well. So would you like to uh, give it a go? It, it's just uh, pronounced panakook. 
You, you actually did it very well. Oh, thank you, Chris. Um, but I would <laughs> love to hear it in Latin from your side. Strong <laughs> are our Latin experts. Yeah. I don't Act think they, with, made, um, they didn't make panakuk. <laughs> no? <laughs> I can see um, we need to move on now quickly. <laughs> so what's up next? You... I'm not sure why. I, no, I, Cruzy, please, explore further. <laughs> Well, we were supposed to have a Latin section. We've got a Greek oh, spot, oh, and Cruzy's hit the nail right on the head here. Where is our Latin section? Can we go to that next, please? Sure. Yes. Sure. And then, Oops, uh, I lost and it. then after that, you can explain to us what it's um, pronounced Greek. <laughs> <laughs> got me. We're moving on now, okay? Because I've been caught in my own trap. We're moving on. Okay. So next, next item up. Next item up. <laughs> What are you reading this week? What are you reading this week? All right. Well, welcome to a new section that we're introducing on our show called What Are You Reading This Week? Because Cliff reads a wide range of books, mainly theology, philosophy and history, but also some interesting things even related to conspiracy theories. So, Cliff, welcome to your new segment and please tell us <laughs> what are you reading this week? Well, I just reread Umberto Eco's Prague Cemetery because uh, mm-hmm. we were talking about that. And uh, yeah. when I was uh, traveling over Christmas, I thought that would be a, a nice kind of light, lighter reading for the road. And it's a really good book. This is only the second time I've read this one, uh, and it's worth a second time through. I'll probably read it again sometime in the future. It, it deals with a possible way the uh, protocols of the learned elder of Zion was written because they know that it was done in stages and uh, one author to the next would contribute their own little bit. And it really started with uh, Dumas mm-hmm. had written a story about Joseph Balsamo, who was uh, actually the real name of Cagliostro. And uh, Cagliostro uh, met with the other Masons for their plot to take over the world right? in, a, in a cemetery. And, uh, and oh, in hence the, the title, uh, the, the Prague Cemetery, right? Yeah, well, it just mutated over the years. Uh, the guy that uh, he creates is a fellow named Simonini. Mm-hmm. Actually, the real beginning wasn't so much a Balsamo, but it was, oh, what is his name? Hang on a second. He wrote one of the early conspiracy theories on the Jews taking over the world. Uh, I can't find it now. But the earliest one was a a priest that had written about the Jews taking over the world. Mm -hmm. And Simonini's grandfather is an actual person that we don't know much about from history, but he wrote a letter to the guy that wrote the book, congratulating him on his astute findings and uh, adding a little bit of his own about how he has been told by the Jews themselves that they were trying to do just that, take over the world. So his grandfather actually prepares him for his profession as a forger, 
of documents and well, 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 just uh, kind of an informant slash writer for uh, various secret services around the world, and just really interesting how he develops because he starts in Italy and he's there at the time of uh, Garibaldi's revolution where he uh, overthrows the other powers that were holding the different kingdoms of Italy apart, including the Pope and the papacy. And he defeated them all and unified Italy. He gave it all to uh, the king of Piedmont. And that became uh, the Italian kingdom, which lasted actually until Mussolini. And at any rate, he, he gets in trouble because he is whispering some things about Mazzini and, and he wrote some things about uh, Garibaldi that the powers that be didn't quite want to use. Uh, so he fell afoul of them, although he did do them some other favors. So they didn't kill him and they sent him to Paris to disappear. And he passed on to the French Secret Service. And he keeps doing all these writings and stuff. And he's coming closer and closer to making his masterpiece, which is the uh, protocols. And they know that the protocols came at different, uh, you know, like with different layers. You know, like any good lie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it develops, you know, and it develops mm. a life of its own. Mm. And it goes from this uh, paranoid ravings of the priest and the paranoid ravings of his grandfather on top of those And it picks up steam as it goes along. Uh, There's a fellow named Jolie who wrote about uh, Napoleon III and how Napoleon III was trying to take over uh, France and turn democracy into quite the opposite of what it was intended to be. as a tool for the powers that be to beat the other people in line because the average country person wasn't very well educated, so they didn't know what their own interests were. You still have people talking like this today, too. It's really, really interesting how that works out. Yeah. And it's like, well, why should they vote? I mean, they they don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's all this kind of thing that that happened. And, and, and the fellow Jolie, he got in a lot of hot water because of what he'd written. And that's how uh, Simonini, the main character, finds out about him. He's sent after him to kind of keep an eye on him, see what he's doing, see what he's writing where the sources were, things like that. And he steals his work and impresses his own work on top of it. So now it's part of the overlay, you know. Mm-hmm. And he starts coming in touch with all these Russians that are leaning more towards an anti-Semitic point of view. And this fits Simonini just perfectly because it brings everything full circle. But in the process of going full circle, he, he runs into a fellow named Leo Toxel. You ever heard of him? No, no. Leo Toxa, uh, T-A-X-I-L. Mm-hmm. And people uh, have asked Echo, where did he create Toxel from? Yeah. You know, who, who was he based on? Yeah. Well, Toxel's based on Leo Toxel. He's a real person. <laughs> <laughs> he has written, or had written, many of the most bizarre and persistent conspiracy theories concerning the Freemasons. And, and people still buy into this. I mean, I've argued with people who spouted the same ideas. It's like, how, how can you argue with this, you know? <laughs> because, because, Cliff, because I've read a little bit about him, and you've told me a fair bit about him, mm-hmm. Umberto Echo's philosophy on conspiracy theory and related subjects is, well, maybe, can you tell us a bit about what it is? Because you would ascribe yeah. to it too, wouldn't you? His take on things. Well, one of the cardinal rules of conspiracy theories is that there is nothing new 
that they're adding, maybe except some details. You know, you, you might be changing the emphasis of where it goes from, but you're not really writing anything new. Mm-hmm. Everything is already there, and it's part of the, the common uh, subconscious mind, you know, that people already, oh, we already know that, you know. You know, the Jews are, you know, stereotypical type people, you know, and so since they are, then we can build on this. And Simonini really embodies that really well. I mean, he is a complete racist, and he has everybody in their little box. You know, every ethnicity has these qualities. And, you know, it's like, you know, you push the button, the light comes on. Mm. Uh, And so there's that. You're not really writing anything new. You're just regurgitating uh, this old stuff in a new way that uh, gets people's attention. And not only that, but because it's nothing new, Everything that they had written before about this now comes with it all together in one big glob. You know, the the ideas uh, have stuck together by association. And this is a perfect example of how uh, semiotic and linguistic kind of processes that come from those. Uh, This is how they work. I mean, when we associate two things together... We can think of them both simultaneously at the same time without too much problem. Uh, for example, a uh, lion with king. Yeah. Those two things come to mind very fast, just immediately. Yeah. And we can actually even take it to a certain amount to the projection of both of them in different directions without being distracted too far. So what I'm saying is, is that that's why they want things that are just regurgitated so that the information that that uh, has come before, it all stays together in one collective heap that when you pull one idea out, you pull out 20. So you have a whole cluster of uh, knowledge that people have associated so tightly together that they're they're not going to forget any of them. They all come together with, with the same thing. So if you had propaganda against one group, and then you had propaganda against another group later on, and they, they're actually the same stuff. Yeah. The associations stay together. So do you think the the reasoning behind his writing this novel, The Prague Cemetery, is to bring some of these ideas out for people to have a bit of an understanding of how conspiracy theories work? Yeah, I think so. Sure, sure. He, he's been writing about them for a long time. Because uh, it's not just for entertainment, is it? I mean, it is an entertaining novel in itself, but it's not just about that, is it? Well, the thing is, he has a lot to say, really. And so, yeah, he's putting it in in a, in a very entertaining form. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can learn quite a bit from it. Uh, of course, some people are going to learn the wrong lesson. Because he does have a sense of humor, too, doesn't he, the author? Oh, he can be hilarious. Yeah. Uh, some of it's really funny. Yeah. Um, I mean, this guy is such a racist that... Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it, I mean, he's really over the top. You, you mean uh, the main character? Yeah. Oh, yeah. it is so over the top that it's really kind of funny. He, when he talks about the Jews, he just really goes nuts. Mm. If Hitler had a sense of humor, he'd probably be something like this guy. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just just terrible. Uh, where, where is this? Uh, I'm talking about the Jews. He says, my uh, childhood years were soured by their specter. My grandfather has described those eyes that spy on you so false as to turn you pale. Those unctuous smiles, those hyena lips, those overbared teeth, those heavy, polluted, brutish looks, those restless creases between the nose and lips, wrinkled by hatred, 
That nose of theirs like the beak of a southern bird. And those eyes, oh, those eyes, they roll fervishly. Their pupils are the color of toasted bread, indicating a diseased liver, corrupted by the secretions produced by 18 centuries of hatred, framed by a thousand tiny wrinkles that deepen with age. And already at 20, the Jew seems shriveled like an old man. When he smiles, my grandfather explained, his swollen eyelids half-closed at the point of leaving no more than an imperceptible line of the sign of cunning, some way of lettery. And when I was old enough to understand, he reminded me that the Jew, as well as being as vain as a Spaniard, ignorant as a Croat, greedy as a Levantine, ungrateful as a Maltese, insolent as a Gypsy, dirty as an Englishman, unctuous as a Kalmuk, imperious as a Prussian, and as slanderous as anyone from Osti. I dreamt about Jews every night for years and years. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean... Uh, I mean this, guy, this guy is just really... Really, really off the wall racist. And he's he's got everybody there. He got the, the Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and he's he's got everyone. them all labeled. Yeah. And he's Piedmontese, so he's kinda half Italian and half okay. French. Okay. And so yeah. he even he even looks down at the French hmm. <laughs> which <laughs> it's just and he's got them all pigeonholed. I mean this guy this guy is just unbelievably Oh my goodness, he's a hideous person. It's like he has no real soul, you know, that, that he's just so filled with hate. And it's all undirected, and and it's really not even passionate, which is really kind of ironic. It's not even passionate. Yeah. He, he is so jaded by it. So is our main character the guy who publishes the Learned Elders of Zion? Yeah, he's, he's the writer. He, oh, he's okay. a forger of documents. Oh, and okay. he, work, he works for different secret services, mostly the French, uh, although he, he began with the Italian. And then he does a lot of work. Uh, he does some work with the Prussians uh, just before the, uh, the Franco-Prussian War. And uh, they, uh, the, the Germans actually occupied uh, Paris, and he talks about that time. And that's where it starts. He starts actually putting his masterwork into place. And there's a, a German writer who steals some of his ideas uh, and writes a novel called Biarritz. Uh, I forget the guy's name, but he's a real person. These are real people. Right. He's interacting with real people, but yeah. he himself he's, is a cipher. Yeah. And and it's because we really don't know who wrote the final product. Um, we know that a fellow uh, named Sergei Nihilus in Russia got his hands on it, but it came from France, and they're not sure who put their imprint on it there. And Nihilus put the final touches to it by adding it to a book that he had put out called The Antichrist. And he was trying to stir up uh, hatred against the Jews during the, uh, well, actually just before World War One, but uh, during the war, too, because a lot of your communists were Jews and things. And there were purposes in them using it at that time. And the person that brought that to Germany was Alfred Rosenberg, the Nazi ideologist who gave it to Hitler, and they, they started publishing it. And it was really there that it became a, really a worldwide kind of phenomenon. You had people like Henry Ford who was publishing it in the U.S. And a lot of people don't think about that, do they? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah I agree, yeah, no. But, I think uh, it's good yeah. to bring that out. Um, yeah, so, but, uh, but it became worldwide from the Germans. Uh, 
So there were there were a lot of people that uh, agreed with Hitler and thought that the final solution was the only thing to do. In fact, uh, over here, I, I I could go into certain bookstores, I can find that mm. in, in Turkish. You know, you don't see it on the bookshelves too much in the U.S. or something, but over here, yeah. you can find it on the bookshelves here. It's not yeah. that big a problem to find. And I hear the same thing in the Arabic countries, too. It's pretty easy to get. What I've heard, and I couldn't confirm it personally, but in a lot of the Arabic and, can we say, Muslim countries, they're more open right. to some of these sort of conspiracy theories or conspiracies than we may be in the West. Would that be right, fair to say? More accepting. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah. In, in some ways, I can understand why, mm -hmm. especially here in Turkey, uh, because there's been a lot of conspiracy that has been actually quite successful, and uh, they really don't talk about where it comes from. Yeah. One of the things about conspiracy theories, I, I've done a lot of research with them, and, and I do find them very interesting. Mm -hmm. One of the things about them is that they're often a reaction to so much official secrecy. Mm. And that makes them really easy to understand, uh, although it doesn't do anything towards, uh, you know, getting correct answers, you know, from them. Because uh, I'm afraid that I think the most conspiracy theories are more than just seriously flawed. They're almost completely fallacious. However, there's, there's often uh, nuggets of information in them that uh, mm. is worth uh, actually recovering. Mm. What can we learn from reading this book if we put the biblical lens across it? It would be a warning against something. I can pick that much up. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a warning against buying into things like this too easily. We really need to be skeptical. Yeah. See, that's, that's part of what our discernment's all about. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, okay, we can't believe it, but it's like, okay... Why do you believe that? You know, yeah. examine it a little closer. Mm -hmm. Is this worthy of being believed in? Mm. You know, we shouldn't just give ourselves over to an idea sight unseen, mm -hmm. especially if it's something like this, where it's nothing but hate, for one thing. Sure. Um, but not only that, there's a reason why he has this fellow working for these governments. Uh, Governments have a real stake in controlling ideas and even leading people in the wrong ways, you know, to the wrong ideas. They have a real stake in that. We shouldn't be following them. You know, it says not to follow the world. Yeah. So that should tell us right there that if people are just following an idea without thinking about it, then we should be saying, well, wait a minute. There's no reason that I should follow this at all. Yeah, so it would be time to put our critical thinking caps on. and yeah. um, But I think one of the red flags, too, is, say, this specific idea of the protocols is the hatred. Yeah. Uh, I think that, oh, was, that, that was a good point you brought out there. And, look, this isn't to say that there aren't conspiracies that do, in fact, oh, uh, happen. Oh, time. That's right, and are in place. And it's not also to say that um, you can't find gems of truth amongst the ideas and thoughts that are put out there. No. But I think you've got to have your critical thinking hat firmly placed on. And I think, sure. like I said, if it's about hatred and hatred of specific people or peoples or a people group or whatever, and then mm -hmm. I think we really need to examine whether we really wanted to go any further with that anyway. So I thought that was a, a great point you made. Sure. So where does the book end up going? In case someone wants to read it, let's not give the, the final 
uh, conclusion yeah, away. Yeah, I, I won't give the ending away, mm. but but it does it does make its hands into the hands of the Russians who put the final touches on it. But he succeeds in getting what he wants in. Yeah, he he's been looking for the chance. He he thought he he was going to do it with the Prussians, and the Germans really were interested. The French were interested, but they also were like, well, you know, we got all these bankers, and we don't really want to make them angry and stuff like this, right? Yeah. So, so it's one of these things, the, the cynicism of all this, because there's, there's no heroes in this book. They're oh, all okay. scoundrels. Uh, yeah. Uh, Leo Toxel is just, really, he's funny, but he's tragic, you know? I mean, he... He goes from slandering the church to slandering the Masons, and it's not like the Masons teach a, you know, what we should be be doing. But at the same time, let's keep the criticism real. And instead, they're accusing them of all these rites and rituals, you know, with Satan and stuff. I mean, it's not there, but the accusations keep coming. What I think we should finish on, and I, I was thinking of this as we were talking. I haven't read the supposed learned elders of Zion for so long, but I have flicked that through them sometime many, many years ago. But I do remember recently reading in a thread somewhere on Facebook, I'm not sure whether you're involved in that one, so I won't ask you to comment on that specifically, but I did see someone say, well, there must be something to them because if you look at each and every one, you can see that the things that are said in there are coming to pass. Have you heard that argument before? I've heard a lot of arguments with the uh, with the protocols, and, and and basically people trying to rationalize the prejudice as a as a rule. One of the things that comes up is some people want to say, well, well, it's not Zion as the Jews, but it's Zion as in the Creature de Sion. Yeah. And and it's like, no, it can't be because for one thing, they didn't exist. That so you know that that argument spurious is complete right. okay. uh, because the the whole priory of Zion thing came from that hoax from yeah. Pierre Plantar yeah. uh, in Holy Blood Holy Grail yes. and, and so you know I mean to even go there is to really stretch it yeah and some people will say well it's the Illuminati well why do you keep calling the Illuminati the Jews you know yes. I mean there's a lot of people who keep dragging that back so yeah. see it goes back to that that idea of these associations being clustered mm. and it's just ridiculous is there something to it well it's imagination they're imagining themselves as, as being demonic people taking over the world does it move people well yeah absolutely so does people reading uh Paradise Lost and, and, and reading what the devil says, it's stirring. Hmm. But it also says something maybe about your character if you're going to buy into this. Yeah. You know, I mean, Milton was not a Satanist. I'm sorry. He wrote a very stirring devil because he really wanted to show what the devil is like. And some people really like what the devil has to say. So it really it really comes around to a different way of looking at it. it the shoe's on the other foot. Okay, great show, guys. I really enjoyed this week. I'm sure we look forward to doing our next variety show. Oh, Cruz? It was awesome being with you guys again. See you later, guys. Thanks for everything. Take <laughs> care. See you later, Cruzy. Cheery, bye. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Cheers, bye-bye. Bye.
joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com. 